go back to history and explain the inequalities that have been created through the different systems that we have and the way that we run our government, the way that we run our education system, all our big institutions, they, you know, they are very much rooted in in white supremacy and in, you know, an extractive economy. And we look back to the very beginning of how this country was made. It's it's the same people that often are left behind. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. Surviving the climate crisis will require collective action on a grand scale, but this action must be led by the communities facing firsthand the impacts of climate change. It is these voices from the front lines who are most valuable to the movement and community leaders who are best positioned to make a change and have lasting impact in correcting for overlapping justice issues and lead us to a planet that is not only livable, but just. Mayra Cruz works to build and foster leadership on climate change and climate resiliency in Miami. As the Climate Resilience Program Coordinator for Catalyst Miami, Maida works with communities to solidify leadership and advocacy skills in order to advance justice and equity in the county. In this week's episode, we talk with her about building resiliency from the local level and creating a strong civil society that is equipped to address climate change along with other most pressing social justice issues. Thank you for making the time to speak with us today. No problem. Um, so first off, I want to hear kind of how you're doing. I know that you're based in Miami, right? So things with mm-hmm. COVID down there are a little um, kind of terrible right now. So how, how have you been through this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been kind of a roller coaster, I guess. Um, it, it's been a, an adjustment, um, you know, working from home, um, we're doing the social distancing as much as possible. We've been doing it from the start, uh, but I think mm-hmm. now um, with how badly things have progressed, um, we're really buckling down on that and trying to avoid um, public spaces as much as possible and all of that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a bit disheartening just seeing how we're, we're not improving and we just keep, you know, piling on the cases every day. So yeah, it's, it's a mixture of frustration, disappointment, and then also just worry about where this is all headed for us. But Definitely. we're okay personally, um, which is which is good, and, and family's okay. So that's that's the silver lining there, I would say. Good. I'm really glad to hear. Um, I'm glad to hear you're still kind of working from home and being able to 
to distance yourself. We we are too. We started working from home back in March and now we're in Boston. Um, Boston mm-hmm. is reopening slowly, but we are still working from home, which I think is makes me feel so better. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Very grateful to be able to do that. Great. Well, I'm also glad to hear that you and your family are doing okay. Um, so that's good. Um, but Myra, maybe I wanted to start off the interview with having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and how you came to do the work that you are currently doing. Yeah, it's it's a, I guess it's a fun story. <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah, I guess um, the way I usually start this is just by going back to what I studied in school, because I think that's really where I started to figure out my my place in this whole fight, I guess, to to combat climate change. I uh, studied public health actually in undergrad and also did a sustainability minor at the same time. I've always been of the mindset that the environment's really important in how it dictates, you know, our lives and, you know, whether we have a safety, healthy environment to live in. It, it matters a lot to, to our outcomes. Uh, so, yeah, I think public health really helped me in connecting the dots a lot and thinking about, of course, the environment, but also just the wider societal issues that we do have and how all of that's just very interconnected. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in many ways, I feel like that's prepared me for the pandemic. Um, of course, having the public health background, mm-hmm. but also... I guess none of this has been a shock. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, to me, it all it all makes sense how things have played out, just from what I know about behavioral science and how people tend to act in these sorts of situations. Uh, but yeah, after after that, it, it became pretty clear that I really wanted to be at that intersection of of climate and health specifically. So that led me to getting my master of public health at Columbia. Had a really great program there that actually. Um, allows you to get even more specific with your degree. So I had an environmental health sciences degree, but specifically focused on the intersections of climate change and and public health. So looking at how climate change really impacts our, our health outcomes um, of individuals and um, the wider public. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of just had this sense that it was really important to know what the specific impacts were on the ground before thinking about any any other kind of work that might have wider reach or wider uh, impact, really, um, thinking more about like policy and stuff like that. But uh, I happened to end up in Miami through just like funny circumstances. My, my partner ended up getting a job offer here and we ended up moving and just so happens that Miami is front <laughs> one of the front lane um, cities when it comes to climate change. Um, so it just ended up working out that there was a lot of need here need here for for someone with that background. Um, so I was fortunate that things worked out the way they did, and I was able to um, get the job that I have now with Catalyst um, at the same time that we moved. Um, so I'm, I'm glad things worked out the way they did. Um, And yeah, Catalyst has been a a great opportunity to really do the work that I set out to do when I was in in grad school. I told myself that it was really, it's really important to know what people are really going through. I think oftentimes Mm -hmm. with the work that I do now, I see elected officials, you know, making broad statements, saying things that aren't necessarily backed up 
of course, by science, but also by just by just real lived experiences. So by doing the work that I do now, which is often community facing and, and working with community members through our leadership programs or through the services that we provide at Catalyst, um, I do feel like I have a really good sense of what what the underground issues are, but also I have a good sense of what solutions, you know, community members are, are really advocating for. Uh, and, and being able to really uplift that um, personally through the work or even better having community members speak for themselves about what what they see as as places for for improvement. Definitely. And I think that is such a crucial point that you bring up and it's understanding truly the, the real lived experiences of people on the ground, because more often than not, it is them who understand the solutions the best as well. Um, exactly. So it, it's a grassroots effort. The only way that, that I think we're going to be able to solve all of these very overwhelming um, issues. And, and it's something that I think, as you've mentioned, um, elected officials or people in power don't necessarily always um, rely on, maybe to the extent that that we should. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit about Catalyst Miami and the, and the kind of programs that you oversee there specifically? Yeah, uh, Catalyst, it's, uh, we've been around since 1996, I believe. Uh, wow. So we've been around for for quite some time. Uh, We actually started off as the Human Services Coalition. That was our original name. But uh, yeah, eventually we changed to Catalyst Miami. That uh, felt like a more appropriate name for the work that we do, trying to catalyze catalyze change. But we primarily focus uh, our work with low middle wealth communities. That's really who we aim to serve and to provide our services to. And the way that plays out for our work is that, you know, we do provide direct services um, in, you know, like free tax preparation and credit building, helping people get out of debt in a way that that works for them and improves their credit. Uh, So we really try to ensure that people are financially stable, but even better if we can get them to really be prosperous. Um, Like we call it our prosperity team for a reason. And then on the other side of things, we have our policy and engagement work, which is where I fall under that department. And um, there is where we have our community engagement team and where we lead out on our climate resilience work, our our advocacy work around affordable housing, for example. Uh, We also do some like healthcare access advocacy as well. Um, So it's a mixture of things. It's, It's the issues that we care about, but we care about them because we know our community members care about them and they've told us that those are the issues that they they really care about and are passionate about. Um, so I specifically lead out on our leadership programs. Uh, one of them is called CLEAR, uh, which is our climate leadership training program. And it's been ongoing since, I believe, fall of 2016. So that was before I started work at Catalyst. I've been on since uh, the beginning of 2018. And so, yeah, now it's it's kind of crazy. I had to think back about how many cohorts we've done. We usually try to do three a year and we just graduated our 11th cohort. So I had to go back in my spreadsheets and <laughs> and figure that out because it's, it's actually been a while. Um, so that was kind of mind boggling to to realize that and the number of people we've had come through that program. 
And then we also have HEAL, which is our affordable housing training program. So it's modeled after CLEAR, uh, but really focused on issues of affordability here when it comes to housing, since that's another another huge uh, you know, issue that we're facing here in, in Miami-Dade. Um, it, it just intersects a lot. All these, both these issues really intersect completely. Um, so yeah, we have those two programs and I think combined we've graduated more than 300, I would say probably more than that at this point. And yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing way to get to know people. And like I said, you know, one of my aims is really to understand where people are coming from and the issues they're facing. And those two programs really provide that outlet uh, and also provide an outlet for them to talk about the solutions that they want to see and implement. And those programs are meant to help them shape that along the way and, and really using education and, and knowledge to, to build that, that leadership up in them. That's, that's already there, but it's really just mm-hmm. like, you know, growing kind of like the embers, you know? Um, yeah. And then, yeah, and then there's just like other wider climate resilience work that I work on. Um, some of it's at the intersection of climate and health and looking at ways to improve extreme heat here, for example, or um, being part of like wider resilience efforts um, within the city and the city of Miami and the county, uh, really looking at ways to to collaborate and and come together to think through some of these really big questions about how do, how do we do this work in a way that provides co-benefits, that's equitable, that centers those that need to be, that haven't been, that have been left behind, honestly, how do we center them and in all of this? So yeah, it's, it's, it's fun work. It's hard work. It's never done, but it's, it's very important. Definitely. That, that's fascinating. And I definitely want to come back to some of those leadership programs, uh, specific questions a little later on. But maybe if we can touch on uh, this intersectional perspective on well-being, I think for a lot of people who, who work at the intersectionality of issues uh, of wealth gaps and economic inequality and public health and the climate, um, a lot of these things can be very self-evident, right? Why these things need to be tackled in a comprehensive manner that understands overlapping challenges and issues. However, um, as I'm sure you have also experienced, uh, there's a lot of people that tend to push back on that, right? And that may Mm -hmm. be even if this, they see climate as an issue and, and a real issue that needs to be tackled, and a response we often get is, well, why do we now need to make this into uh, a social issue, a racial issue, an mm-hmm. economic issue, right? Um, so what do you say to those people? Or I guess, how how do you explain at the core of, of why we need to take this intersectional perspective? Yeah, I I think... I mean, unfortunately now with the, especially with the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, basically I, I don't think it's, it's a surprise that at the same time we have climate change, we have, you know, for us, at least here in the Atlantic, you know, we're expecting, expecting to see a, a more active hurricane season than normal. You have that happening. And then you also have the Black Lives Matter movement um, happening as well. I, I don't, think it's it's a surprise that you have a convergence of all these things happening at the same time. Um, so what I would I would do in that situation is just, you know, go back to history and explain really the history of like the the inequalities that have been created through the different systems that we have and the way that we run, like our government, the way that we run um, like our education system, all our big institutions. 
um, they, you know, they are very much rooted in, in white supremacy and in, you know, an extractive economy. And, you know, if we look back to the very beginning of how this country was made, it's, it's the same people that often are left behind and are, are not included, um, parts of, in, in very important conversations. Uh, you know, when we look at who is often, you know, being more impacted by coronavirus, it's Black populations, it's immigrant communities, it's indigenous communities, who's often impacted the most um, by climate change. It's Black people, it's it's Latinx populations, it's indigenous communities. Um, You know, you can, you start to, once you start to look at it from that lens of who's having the most burden at this time, it's, it's the same, same groups of people. And, you know, after a while, you know, you kind of, even if like, you're still kind of not getting it, if you start to look at it from that perspective, you know, is it coincidence at that point? Or is there something, you know, bigger and wider at work here that's leading to the same groups of people um, having disproportionate impacts? So I think that's, that's probably what I would pull from. And like I said, I think the pandemic especially has has brought to light just how we've we've really failed people over time when it comes to providing safety nets. Um, the fact that Florida still hasn't expanded Medicaid here, you know, other states have done that. How many people would be having more access to healthcare right now if we had passed that um, amendment, you know, a couple of years ago? Uh, you know, you can just keep kind of unraveling the web in that way, and and it's not hard to see how you know, historically, we've just really, you know, fallen short for, for particular groups here in the country. So that's, that's how I would start to paint the picture there and and connect the dots for someone. Um, I think for any of these issues, like, if you're not, if you're not centering justice in the work and equity, then you're probably not, you're not going to solve the problem when it comes to climate change, when it comes to health inequities, when it comes to, um, racial justice, any of those big, big issues that we're talking about. Absolutely. And I think that's why solutions or quote unquote solutions that don't take equity and justice into account are at best almost band-aids or holdovers that just perpetuate the systems that cause the problems to begin with. Um, and so it it is in that line also Exciting, though, to see what is happening now and and seeing so many more people mobilized around all of these issues in a holistic way and understanding, as you say, the big picture of of we need systemic change and systemic reform because um, so many things are just not working. We saw the collapse of our public health systems. We are seeing um, the issues around our, our justice system as well. And so Maybe if I'm, I'm curious to hear from you and from the people that you interact with and train, how you're thinking of this particular moment um, as, uh, I'm pardon the pun, a catalyst for the work <laughs> that you do. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that happens so many times. You're like, ah, I didn't mean to make that. <laughs> it just happens. Yeah, it it comes naturally sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I think. For for catalysts and the work that we do, we you know we do see ourselves as a social justice organization, and we mm-hmm. we definitely see the importance of of both you know 
it's like the, you know, two sides of the same coin kind of situation where we're very aware that it's difficult to ask people to invest their time into a leadership program when they're not able to pay all their bills or when they're working multiple jobs or when, you know, they have to look after their kids and, you know, there isn't childcare available. We're very aware that mm-hmm. if people's basic needs aren't met, then it's very difficult for them to think about ways to, to better themselves through something like a leadership program. Uh, so in that way, I think it's really helpful that we do, you know, oftentimes we have clients that go through our program through our services, and then they end up in our leadership programs or vice versa. That's something, that's a model that we have in place and something that we, you know, always want to keep expanding is kind of having that, that back and forth from, from both ends of the, of the organization. But, uh, you know, looking at the current moment, you know, for us, I think it's been, in a way, it's very much just given us, you know, more, you know, we feel like the work that we do is important. We all, we've always known that, but we've just gotten this reassurance that it, it really is meaningful, the work that we provide from the financial services to the healthcare access work to, you know, our clear and heal program, for example, it all, it all kind of works together to get at, at the root of the, of the issues that we've, we've been discussing here. And, you know, for our leadership programs, you know, we've, we had clear happening right before coronavirus. We were five, five weeks through and had another five to go. And then we had to pause and then we had to pivot to offering the program virtually. And, you know, that's something that we talked about is, you know, what is, what does this mean now? Like, do we think that, that people still want to go through a program like this? Is it something that there's hunger for? Because we know there's so much else going on, but there still was, there was still a need for that. Um, people, what I've noticed is that people feel really empowered right now to do more and to get, you know, activated basically and, and to be part of, of the fight, whatever that means for them. Um, whether that is like getting into the climate fight or the housing fight here, or, you know, trying to defund the police, whatever that means for them. Um, so I'm, I'm just glad that we can provide an outlet for that and a way to provide structure for those conversations. But yeah, it's, it's things that we don't shy away from. And, you know, I think our first class, we talked about kind of an intersection of all of this. We talked about the fight for the Dakota, the Dakota access pipeline. And the fact that that's something that looks very similar to what we're going through now, where you had indigenous communities trying to fight a pipeline going through, through their lands and having to face police brutality in that case and how, um, you know, like basically an army was deployed to try and stop them from peacefully protesting something that should have never been happening in the first place. Um, So, you know, we spent time talking about that and connecting the dots to how that doesn't look all that different from what we've been seeing the last, you know, two months here. Uh, so yeah, those, those are kind of some of the ways that we, we try to tackle that within our programs, but you know, they're very much rooted in that. Like we, we don't shy away from calling out, um, racism as a, as a root cause for a lot of these issues, especially when we talk about environmental justice and why certain communities benefit, um, from certain, you know, environmental initiatives and others don't. And the same with affordable housing, the first class we talk about redlining and, you know, how some, how, uh, you know, 
policies rooted in, in racism have really, uh, you know, created such massive issues decades later for, for many communities of color. So, you know, we, you know, we, we know, we know to have those conversations and to just call that out from the start um, as a way to, to start those conversations. Absolutely. And I imagine it's it's incredibly empowering to be able to to have that space and to and to share the realities and history of, of people's lived experience in many ways. Um, what what have been some of the most rewarding parts of, of leading these programs for you and your experience and seeing the graduates and participants go off with these newfound tools and, and empowerment to make change in their communities? It's probably one of the most rewarding things I've done. I think, uh, I think whenever we finish up a cohort, you know, there's definitely times where I'm like, oh God, I'm so tired. <laughs> a long week of work. And then we, we get to graduation. And then when we hear, you know, our elected class speakers talk about the impact that the program has had and the way that they, they hope to carry the work moving forward, you know, it just, gives me like that added boost basically to continue the work uh you know we've we've had just such great uh you know reach with the program and you know we have graduates now that are now you know a climate justice organizer at you know nonprofit here or something similar to that to that uh position um you know and we've had others that have gotten really involved in other coalition work now and are speaking up um, there or, you know, there's been a lot of recent commission meetings that have been taking place. And I'm always happy when I hear a familiar voice um, and it's someone that's mm -hmm. gone through our programs and are speaking up about um, for or against something that's being proposed during the meetings. Um, and I think especially now as of late, like I just, I keep seeing them out and about um, virtually, of course, <laughs> yeah. but it just, it's been really reaffirming that the, the programs do have a wide reach. I mean, I can keep going on about the different ways that I've seen them, you know, really take the work moving forward from, we've also had people consider, you know, reconsider their career paths. And, you know, there's someone that just um, actually featured on her website. Her name is Lauren. And she, you know, went through the effort of going through our program during the summer last year. And, you know, she lived in one end of the county and was driving to Homestead, which is like the most Southern part of our county to take the program. And then because of her enthusiasm and, and her experience with teaching, we hired her to be a, a facilitator. Um, and she had a blast doing that and had such a great impact on our participants. And then now she's, you know, deciding to pursue a, a master of public health um, after, you know, seeing the the impact and that intersection and how she can really, you know, hone in on the skills that she's picked up now from from Clear and her her experiences um, to to carry that out in, in a program and then you know pursue a career in that field. Um, but there's just like stories like that that are really inspiring and you know really show us that this this does have a meaning. This provides like meaning to to people and that it is worth their while uh so yeah i think it's it's a model that definitely works and i mean some of it you can't really quantify like how do you quantify someone <laughs> deciding to completely like change their career path i have no idea how you start to put that into numbers but you know it just makes me in, incredibly proud to see them you know really applying this in 
in their lives in whatever way makes sense for them. Definitely. And it's a huge um, impact multiplier, right? Because that one person can go on and, and change their focus in life and then disseminate these ideas and impact further. Um, so that's really fascinating, especially finding talent from communities themselves um, that are living through these impacts. Um, and in that in that vein, I wanted to talk to you about resiliency and, and what that means for different organizations and institutions, right? This has become a little bit of, of a buzzword, mm-hmm. uh, but it's often um, classified as, as very massive projects, for example. We're building resilience, quote unquote, and that often translates into let's just put up a massive seawall um, along mm-hmm. Miami to protect from storm surges and flooding, or let's just revamp our buildings so that we can have floodplains. Um, but I know that you've said these these huge engineering projects don't always reflect the needs and desires of communities. And, and we actually know that they might even have a negative toll um, and not be as effective in, in solving some of these things. Different ideas of resiliency emphasize kind of human and community level resilience and, and how we build social bonds and trust. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you and, and from the people that you work with what what does resiliency mean and, and how can we really get to a community-led effort in, in building resilience? Yeah, you've, you've done your research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so you're referring to the Backface study. Yeah, that's been an, an ongoing thing now and a lot of different groups are involved uh, in providing comment and, you know, figuring out like, the, the steps moving forward for that in particular. But, you know, for us, resilience, and I, you know, I'm speaking for me personally, but also I think the way that mm-hmm. Catalyst thinks about it makes a lot of sense to me, which is that, you know, oftentimes you hear people say, you know, resilience is bouncing, bouncing forward or bouncing back to where you were before. Some people use that definition. For me, it's, not necessarily bouncing back to where you before, because, you know, if you were to tell a community member that we work with that we just want to get you back to where you were before, after some major disaster happens for a lot of them, that's not a great place. It's, it means, right. you know, being financially unstable. It means maybe living in a higher risk area for, for climate change impacts. Uh, so the way that I think about it is, you know, really bouncing forward and getting to a place where not you're not only like financially stable, where you're not only, you know, economically stable or, you know, it's not just stability, but it's really about prospering and feeling like you're moving forward and like there's upward mobility, like there's a chance, not a chance, but that you're able to have um, a better outcome in, in life, um, whether that is like financially, whether that's like your educational attainment, whether that's, um, you know, being able to stay put in one place and not having to worry about, you know, a hurricane destroying your home. Uh, So for us, it's really looking at it in a holistic point of view. Uh, So for us, it's not just the infrastructure, it's really thinking about someone's whole life and, and what, what goes into that and, and making sure that that's, it's a life that, you know, isn't threatened by all these outside factors. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sure, I know other people don't necessarily think about it that way or, or don't have mm-hmm. such a wide view for it, but I think that's also why I think uh, resilience, like 
anything can really be related to resilience. Um, There's a reason why the resilient through a five strategy that we have for the Miami-Dade County, for the city of Miami and for Miami beach. There's a reason why that document is like a behemoth of a, of a PDF file is because thankfully they, they realize that you can't, if you don't talk about, you know, education, if you don't talk about housing, if you don't talk about uh, access to, you know, parks or greenery, if you don't talk about access to mental health services and you're not really thinking, you're not really getting at the root of, of what resilience means for someone. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, that that's really the way that we try to approach it. And that's why, you know, it, it's great that, like I, I mentioned before, that Catalyst is able to provide financial services, but also kind of like that 2.0 of our leadership programs and our community engagement work that we do ways to get further involved in the issues. It's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, Sometimes it's uh, kind of thinking about it that way. You know, like I mentioned before, if you're not able to meet your most basic needs, it's it's hard to ask someone to go above and beyond and to like go out and vote and to um, call on behalf of a campaign or to sign a petition. Uh, It's not, it's not necessarily fair to make that ask of people um, if we're not, if we're not able to help them out. you know, with whatever they, they need the most at that time. Um, and yeah, I know a lot of people face that issue when they, we think about climate change. It's like, why don't more people get involved? Right. Um, there's just a lot of barriers sometimes. Absolutely. And I think it's it's in line with a lot of the thinking that we're seeing now, right? With people saying we, from this pandemic, it's simply not enough to want to go back to normal, quote unquote, because in back to normal, we already had a housing crisis and, mm-hmm. and a policing crisis and a racial crisis in the country. And so I think more and more people are recognizing that that well-being of communities and, and resilience of communities isn't just not living through a pandemic or not living mm-hmm. through flooding, right? It's how we are able to just thrive and prosper, as you say, always, and not just in the face of, of horrific disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are actually talking another podcast that we were recording and, and Lauren, our guest, was saying how she's been thinking like a lot of people of this pandemic as a like a dress rehearsal for what's to come with climate change which is mm. a really horrifying prospect but i think in many ways it's it's true we are seeing kind of the cracks in in the systems and the vulnerabilities already these mm-hmm. past couple of months and the dire consequences they have for so many of us already living at the intersection of these issues yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting that. I'm gonna have to use that now. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, is there anything that you are particularly excited about in your work that's coming up this year, next year, or or what's next for Catalyst Miami? Well, uh, you know, we've all had to pivot um, from our services mm-hmm. side to our community engagement work to our leadership programs. We've all had to pivot to, you know, fit the the new normal now of, you know, being hopefully, you know, quarantining at home. And if you, if you have that opportunity. Uh, so, I'm, I mean, yeah, it's, it's been, yeah, I know there's been some road, 
road bumps here and there, but I think overall I'm really impressed with how we were able to, to, you know, transition so quickly. Uh, you know, we were in the midst of tax season when all of this happened and right. thankfully we were able to convert our systems to work online. Uh, so there's things like that that have happened. Like I mentioned, our leadership programs, we always offered them in person because it is, you know, there's there's something special about being in a room with people you wouldn't necessarily be with. Um, sometimes, you know, like you get such a great amalgamation of people from all over the county sometimes taking these programs that come from different racial, ethnic backgrounds that come from different educational backgrounds. It's just a it's a very diverse group in many ways. So it's it's nice when you get to have that face to face interaction. Um, so for many reasons, you know, we've always done it in person and never offered it virtually. Um, so for us, that was that was a new endeavor. Uh, and uh, we were actually supposed to work on I mean, we're still doing the work, but we know we've also been doing uh, census work, uh, our community engagement team. That's something that they've been tackling uh, because typically here we don't have great engagement when it comes to filling out the census. Um, so that's still ongoing. And uh, I'm I'm doing my plug on, on behalf of, of my of my coworker uh, to remind people to fill out their census, uh, trying to get to at least like 70, 70 percent, I think, is our goal, um, which which is higher, I think, than years past. Um, but, yeah, I think looking to the future, um, you know, I mean, a lot of us are still you know, we're still pivoting and, and noticing that there's a lot of fights that have to continue. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, the continuing work on on the eviction moratorium here for for the state. Um, it's it's a frustrating process, but you know, every every month at the end of the month, that that's a big fight. Um, so that's something that you know we you know we were working on before, but not 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 to this degree, I guess, or it didn't look this way where it was like a monthly fight, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for me specifically, you know, we, we've been doing a lot more work around um, like the utility shutoffs that have been already happening across the state. Uh, we're particularly focused on, you know, FPL in Miami-Dade County. And, so yeah, we're we're undertaking a, a big campaign there, just trying to make sure that people are getting the the relief that they need at this time. Um, you know, we were mentioning the cracks in the system, and you know, we know people that were struggling before the pandemic happened to to keep up with their utility bills, and now this has completely worsened their situation even more by twofold, threefold, whatever the number is. Uh, so that's something that wasn't necessarily a fight that we you know, we were trying to actually get a 100% resolution passed here. And now we're, you know, we've had to pivot away from that a little bit to really focus on the immediate needs that we we see right now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's work that I guess I, I am, ex- I am excited for because I'm, I'm hoping that we can get people the, the help that they need at this time. And then also use that as a way to kind of build towards that 100% renewable future where, you know, we don't have these situations happening where people are are left at the mercy of, you know, utility companies and that are this, this large um, who, you know, have, have the complete power to say whether or not someone has access to their electricity 
in the middle mm-hmm. of a pandemic and hurricane season and very hot weather, which is just, you know, when you put it into that <laughs> perspective, it's kind of crazy, the stuff that no, we have to go yeah. through here. Um, but yeah, that's, that's like probably going to be ongoing work. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're not working on the election specifically, but, you know, we're we're working on putting forms together and and really just making sure that people are are continuing to be engaged and that know that local elections really do matter as well. Um, you know, we're a C3 organization, um, so we don't speak out on particular candidates, but we we do want people to be aware of, you know, you know, which candidates are thinking about about these issues and have plans for for these issues and solutions or you know, ways that they're hoping to tackle climate change and affordable housing and, you know, the pandemic here, because clearly that's not, that's not going away anytime soon. So I'm sure, you know, a lot of our work will continue to be focused around that and making sure that the communities that we work with are, are not being left behind, that they're, they're having access to the relief programs that come out, that they, you know, that their situations don't worsen really Um, for some of them it has. And it's, it's really, yeah, it's just really disheartening. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. And it's, it's such amazing and important work that you and your colleagues are doing as, as I hear you talk through these issues, I'm like, my God, this year, um, it's just crazy how much is going on from the elections and the census and the pandemic and the hurricanes. Yeah. And there's so many fronts, the eviction crises that, that, that it seems to be impending, but um, it's brilliant work. It's been brilliant to to hear from you all, all of the hard work that you're doing. And maybe in closing, I like to ask this question to end maybe on a, on a happier note. Mm-hmm. Um, what does an ideal and, and a resilient future look like for you and, and your community? That's a really good question. Yeah. I think oftentimes we get into the rut of looking at the at the negatives. Um, so it is refreshing mm-hmm. to think about what things could hopefully look like. Uh, you know, for me, I think, you know, I'm assuming I'll still be in Miami uh, for quite some time. So what I would hope to see is that, you know, we we have communities that are that are coming together that we're not so segregated as we are now that we have you know different groups from different you know racial and ethnic and economic backgrounds you know working together um that you you don't you have like that social cohesion and that you know your neighbor that you feel like you can go to others around you for help if you need it uh you know that we do have a clean energy all about us that, you know, as a sunshine state, we really are leading on, on solar energy and having solar panels everywhere, uh, you know, that people can afford to live um, in, in the city that they grew up in, or, you know, the city that they've adopted, that I'm not seeing homeless people out and about that we have these social safety nets in place uh, that really help people, you know, uh, you know, get out of the situations and, and be able to, you know, be a part of, of the wider society as they should be. And yeah, I think just that we, you know, we have access to the things that we need and people are able to to still live here if they want to. I think that's the biggest thing. I think if, if people had, you know, well-paying jobs, um, it would solve a lot of these issues, hopefully. Um, 
and yeah, I hope that Miami is is around still and that we figured out, you know, whether, you know, how to adapt to some of the incoming water that will definitely be around. But uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it is possible. I think, you know, if anything, what our leadership graduates have taught me is that uh, the solutions are definitely out there. The right. the grand ideas are there. Some of them aren't even that far fetched. Um, and and yeah, I mean, they they definitely give me hope that we we can figure this out. Um, there's certain things that need to be put into place. Um, certain um, people that might need to be you know shuffled around. <laughs> um, but you know, I think you know, it's, it's definitely there. It's possible. Uh, you know, the, the amount of people that have come together at this time to protest, of, um, you know, the police brutality that we've seen and, you know, these horrific murders really, um, you know, it's the most that we've ever seen in like the history of like movements and stuff like that. So I think right. it's not impossible. It's definitely not. And, you know, it's like, it's things that we need to hold on to, uh, and just to keep building off of. So, yeah, I think there's there's definitely hope and I think we 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 can get there. Uh just right now it's a little tough to see like the light in a tunnel, but you know, uh we we do we do have the tools and the solutions to to make that happen, to make that resilient future happen. Absolutely, and I think more and more a desire as well, right? As you say, people coming together and kind of caring for one another in a way that we haven't seen in a long time, which is going to be crucial to to getting to this future, is is understanding the humanity in each other and the value and worth um, of each other in our communities. And mm-hmm. I think, if I may say so personally, I think people like you and the work that you do are also part of what gives me hope. I get to talk to all these brilliant people and have these conversations, and I'm left with a renewed sense of hope for what, what we can accomplish. So thank you very, very much. No, thank you. I, um, you know, this is also part of like the wider, you know, work and solution is to just get the, the word out and have people get a sense of what, what is happening on the ground. And, uh, it's, Definitely. it's always great to have those opportunities to be able to talk about, about the work and just, you know, Miami has a lot of issues, but there also is a lot of great work happening here. So it's it's great to be able to, to highlight that as well. Definitely. And I very much look forward to being able to send you this uh, once it airs and, and sharing it widely um, so people can learn about, about your work and your community. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, Myra, please take care of yourself um, and I hope to be in touch and thank you for your time. Thank you, you too. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris and me, Maria Virginia Olano, and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 